Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you are the God who so graciously has come down, has covenanted with us, has given us your revealed word, and now we get that opportunity as a people of God to study that word. Father, we pray that your spirit would lead and guide us in all truth and wisdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are on the uh, book of Lamentations this week. I will share with you something. So I started seminary for my Master's in Divinity in 2017. Slow process. It's just the, the reality of it as you're trying to pastor, slow. So one of the things that I've learned about seminary, I'm, I'm 20 credits away from a 96-credit course uh, of, of Master's in Divinity, and I've learned that, huh, they don't teach you everything. I thought when you got done here, you get you, like you would know it all. Eh. What they do is they give you uh, uh, systematic theology. They give you uh, biblical theology. They give you, and the systematic theology is critical, so you understand systems of, think, of theology, um, justification, um, man, sin, the Trinity, you know, the parts, the persons of the Trinity, the doctrine of the word, the doctrine of the church, all these different doctrines in systematic theology, and that's very important. But what I'm getting at is, until I, as a pastor, go through and teach or preach a book, they didn't, I didn't do that in seminary, so to the depth that I need to do it in preaching or teaching, so oftentimes for me, this is the same journey that the people are taking because it's, we haven't, anyways, what I'm getting at is like this week with Lamentations, I learned so much about Lamentations. I learned things I've never seen before. This is such a blessing. I love this book to a greater degree than I did last Sunday. And so I just want to share with you that that's kind of where we're after. We, it's, it's a blessing to be able to have such joy in this. So with that, let's go ahead. I'm going to take a look real quick. You'll notice there's some blue, like in the, the where it says Lamentations 3, about two-thirds of the way down. You'll see we're going to actually read some of Lamentations 3, and I'm going to have somebody have the mic who wants to, and we're going to read those larger chunks if we have a chance. And then there's two more on the back of this that are in blue that we'll, we'll read those, and that is the scripture we're going to try and get to. The rest of it, this is I'm going to try and just talk us through like I've done in the past rather than pass the mic because I know what it says and I know what comments I want to make, so we're just going to work through it. So we're in class 21 of Lamentations, and the, this week's, uh, again, we're in the biblical theology introduction of the Old Testament. What's the difference between biblical theology versus uh, systematic theology? Systematic theologies are systems of, of doctrines, Biblical theology is the whole book of the Bible, understanding its interconnectedness with all the different books. So you need to know the individual books, the themes behind them, um, the message, who, you know, the, the, the time frame, where we are on the, the whole plan of salvation. So that's what we're going over today. We're trying to learn how does this book fit into God's plan of salvation. Okay, so with that, um, the book or the author this week, you'll see I wrote it on the paper, is Peter Y. Lee. Okay, let's take a look. Let's jump into the author. The Greek Septuagint, that's the Greek, that's the, what I'll call the Hebrew Bible that was translated into Greek, the language of, the, uh, of Greek. Um, uh, that that uh, particular 
if you will, Bible, the Latin Vulgate. So the Hebrew was translated into Latin. So we have the Latin Vulgate and Jewish tradition specified Jeremiah as the author, while a number of commentators, it should be commentators, commentators? Wow, there's a misspelling. Simply list the author as unknown because he is specifically, not specifically identified. I strongly believe this is Jeremiah, and we're going to see why I believe that um, it's Jeremiah. The, 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 the church up until of late, uh, contemporary commentators, really held to this being Jeremiah as being the author of Lamentations. That's why they put, in the, when they compiled the English Bible, that's why Lamentations follows the prophet Jeremiah. Because it's not only tied to a historic time that Jeremiah lived, but it's tied to him as the author. And I think that is truly the case. Date. If Jeremiah is the author, the book is dated sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Jeremiah goes through the fall, and he's writing about that, that whole process of uh, what took place in the fall and what's, what's happening to the people of God, this exiled people of God. Okay, so... Um, we've got a genre is poetic. Some see it as a personal dirge, um, while others view it more as a communal lament. It is both. This is both a very personal book, and you'll see that, and you can see that if you have gone through any suffering, this book will be very helpful to you, especially now that you're going to know it, hopefully a little bit more so than you did before you went to this class today. Okay, uh, canonical position. The Hebrew Bible places Lamentations as one of the five books of the uh, Megaloth. The Megaloth in Hebrew just means scrolls. And you're like, well, well, why did they do that? Well, here we go. Each of the five Megaloth books is read as part of a specific Jewish festival. You may not have realized that. So Ecclesiastes is read by the Jews once a year, at, at least once a year, as a, as a people of God in one of their festivals. And so let's take a look at the other books of the Megalith. It is Songs of Songs, which is, sang at, or, which is read at the Passover, which is interesting. PJ just went through that. Song of Songs at Passover. I'll let you dwell on that one. Uh, there, there's, a, there's one that'll help you process the value of that or the purpose of that book. And then Ruth is at Pentecost not the Christian Pentecost. This is, uh, Pentecost would uh, also be understood as uh, seven, the, week, the Festival of Weeks. Um, it was seven weeks, seven times seven is 49, plus one day, 50. It was after the, the harvest began. You were celebrating the harvest. So you have the, the Ruth celebrated what really in the Old Testament is referred to more commonly, maybe more commonly understood by us, is the uh, Festival of Weeks, sometimes referred to as Booths. Oh, excuse me, just Weeks, not Booths. We're going to come to Booths. And then Lamentations is the ninth of Ab. And you go, the what? What festival? We're going to read about it. And then we have Ecclesiastes, the Feast of uh, Booth or Tabernacles. And then Esther is read um, at the Feast of uh, Purim, or Purim um, is the way it's pronounced. Um, so let's talk about the, the ninth of Ab, where this, this book... Yeah, Lamentations is read. It, it, um, it occurs approximately in July or August. It's based on the Jewish or the Hebrew calendar, which has a little bit of fluctuation in it. Uh, that's why it, um, you'll sometimes have Passover, and it'll seem like it's in one month or another month, according to our calendar. 
Um, it is a day of fasting and mourning in the Jewish calendar. It was originally intended to commemorate the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So you can see this is a late occurring um, festival, it occurred late in history as a, as a new kind of festival. Later, it was also used to remember the destruction of the city in A.D. 70. They, they thought, well, this, we, knew that we knew the destruction of, it, uh, of Jerusalem. We should also commemorate now that, uh, excuse me, the, yeah, now we have the destruction of Jerusalem again a second time. Then we're going uh, to uh, add that new destruction into the understanding of it. Now it has expanded and it's used to include all other disasters that have befallen the Jewish people including, which makes total sense, the Holocaust and World War II, which they saw as the, and really what we see in the, the books and the annals of time and the chronicles of time, that Hitler trying to extinguish the Jews, to get rid of them completely um, off the face of the earth, and God not allowing that. Okay, so let's look at the structure and outline and themes. The acrostic structure with the first four poems closely following the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. You might notice that some of these, uh, of these chapters are 22 lines. This is, this, is for, this is for a purpose. And when you get to the third uh, uh, poem, if you will, the third chapter, it's going to triple that. And it's going to go with 66 lines. What do we know about threes? in numerology, in Hebrew numerologies. Three are a way of emphasizing. There's three times the number of lines in the third chapter. That means take close attention to the third chapter. It's very important. Um, it's one of, the one of the things that's being communicated there. So let's continue on. Uh, let me start from the beginning. The acrostic structure with the first four poems closely following the Hebrew alphabet clearly demonstrates an intentional design and purpose. It provides literary stability to the book as a whole. Well, why is that so important? Let me read on. This is unexpe unexpected since the message is one, the message of lamentations, in other words, is one of instability, disorder, chaos, destruction, and suffering. Okay, do you remember when, we, when I went through Genesis and we taught through that uh, from the pulpit here, preached to that, what happens in judgment as it relates to the word creation? Is creation moving forward or backwards in times of judgment? Backwards. Very good. That's what the God of the Bible is able to do. And it's actually, we see it in, in Exodus more clearly. It starts, we have that understanding in, in uh, Genesis. So when we see uh, instability, disorder, chaos, destruction, and suffering... That's God's judgment on the people. He is moving from an ordered creation backwards into the time when all there was was darkness over the world and water and the Spirit waiting to take that which was without form and void. It didn't have anything in it. It was in a state of disorder, and God was about to bring order to it. So when we read the book of Ecclesiastes and we see all this disorder, we go, oh, we know what this means. This is judgment. This is God's punishment on a, on a covenantal people. They broke the covenant big time. And in Deuteronomy, you, it lays out, this is, Deuteronomy is, Deuto is, uh, is twice, this, or the second giving. Moses is giving the law in Deuteronomy to this new generation because the old generation died off because they were punished. 
He's giving the law, and he says, he gives a list of, in the, towards the end of Deuteronomy, blessings and curses. And he says, this is our covenant. If you do what I ask you to do, here are your blessings. But if you fail to do what I ask you to do, in fact, if you sin and disobey, this is you, you will receive the covenant curse. They are receiving the covenant curse in the full weight of it. In Ecclesiastes, they're living through the destruction of, of Jerusalem, their city, and all of the pain and suffering. So we want to get an idea of, okay, this book is about judgment. All right, so let's continue on. The acrostic structure is the opposite. It is stable, fluid, and elegant. It's just amazing how beautiful God is. In the midst of judgment, there is hope in how the, the letter or how the the book of Lamentations was written. If you were a Hebrew and you could speak Hebrew and you knew your alphabet, you would see this acrostic. You would see the order in, if we saw a poem and it started off with the first line was A and the second line was B and the second line, the third line is C and then D, you'd be gone. Huh. They would see this. There's order in the midst of disorder. This is hope in the way it's written. It's an implied hope. What a cool thing. Okay, let's continue on. I know I get a little geeked out over the, the language stuff, but it's, it's, to me it's like, man, God's picture just gets more deep and beautiful as you understand these areas. Let's take a look at Lamentations 1 as it relates to some of the themes or the overlying themes in each chapter. The shame and mourning of the city. In Hebrew, the word for city is feminine. So you will always see cities referred to in the feminine sense. If you wondered why they referred to cities as daughter or widow, it's because cities in the Hebrew mind frame or, or mindset, their language are always feminine in, in that understanding. So we just, you got to get that or you'll miss some of the, why is he starting out with this as a, from a feminine perspective? Okay, so the themes that dominate this chapter in Lamentations 1 are shame and remorse brought on by the rebellion of the city of Jerusalem, so the people itself. The city is personified as a woman. Now we start to understand why. And the potent... Uh, uh, why does that say potent? Why didn't I not catch that? I don't know what that word's supposed to be. It can't be potent. It should be author. I don't know what, how that got there. And the author utilizes a plethora of female images to portray the curse of the covenant against Lady Jerusalem. And this is what they do. So when you see all this female imagery, God is taking on from the language that position, but he takes it from different positions of women. Listen to this. A lonely widow. That's the way uh, the city is personified. She's the last to fall. She's all alone. The, the northern kingdom has already fallen. Most of the southern kingdom is, all of the rest of the southern kingdom has fallen. There's just Jerusalem. She's left. She's widowed from the rest of the nation. It's already gone into exile. A lonely widow, a dethroned queen reduced to the status of a maiden, she, it's also referred to. A treacherous wife betrayed by her, she's treacherous because she's adulterous. A treacherous wife betrayed by her adulterous lovers. The very lovers that, that, that woo Jerusalem to, to take on these false gods, this idolatry, this adulterous relationship, are the very ones that are betrayed her and now come to conquer her. 
one sexually abused and stripped naked, that's a difficult one to, to comprehend, and a ritually unclean menstruating woman. So we see all of this different imagery. Now you understand why all that imagery is tied there. Furthermore, at one point, this was the highest esteemed city. This was the most respected woman in all the world. And this is how she has fallen. And she is under judgment by her God. This is not uh, the Babylonians doing this. This is, yes, they are the agent. This is God. And we're going to see God's wrath being brought through this the agent of the Babylonians. Okay, Lamentations 2. Um, it's the Lord, which we know all caps means Yahweh. Yahweh, so, and when we hear Yahweh, we remember that it's the covenant-keeping God, the one who made covenant with this, with this nation, and particularly this city, as is the primary agent of wrath. And what is wrath? When we hear wrath, sometimes we go, man, you just hit me with all your wrath, and I feel like you just spewed all your anger all over me. And we have this wrong understanding of wrath. Wrath is righteous anger demonstrated by God against sin. All mankind that does not bow a knee to Christ Jesus and recognize him as Lord and Savior will for eternity experience God's righteous anger, God's wrath. So we have to understand wrath is not capricious punishment. Wrath is righteous anger born onto or brought about to those who are deserving of it by God. Okay, so let's continue on. The Lord is the primary agent of wrath, whereas Lamentations 1 is more interested in a subjective uh, as opposed to an objective. It's subjected because, oh, I didn't get that again. Look at how I spelled Judah. The subjective misery of Judah. Why is it subjective? Because it's tied to their disobedience. Okay, Lamentation 2 focuses on the agent of that misery, Yahweh, as the enemy of the personified city. It's almost as if he's their enemy. He, they are feeling the full weight of the curse that they incurred because of their disobedience. Then you get, so some of you are probably going, why would we have this book? And Nick, why are you mentioning this as, as something that would be good for those who are suffering? Really? You got somebody who's, you know, suffering at, because of their own sin, and you're going to suggest they read this? Isn't that a little harsh? I mean, what are we going to see here? Stand by. Just be patient. We'll continue to explain it. Lamentation 3. Now, this one is the, the, uh, the hinge pin. Is that hinge pin? Did I say that right? Hinge pin. The, the important one, the pivot, all that good stuff. Sometimes my uh, vernacular doesn't keep up with my brain. The lamentations, the lament, excuse me, the lament of the afflicted man and his community. That's what's going on in Lamentation chapter 3. The third person poem changes the persona of the poem from a female voice of Lamentations 1 and 2 to a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Now, I want you to understand, this is one of the primary reasons why I believe this is Jeremiah. And we're going we're to bear this out. Just follow me with this. The man's perspective is, is in 3, uh, 3, 1 through 39, and 3, 48 through 66, while the community's is in 3, 40 to 47. You see a little bit of shifting going on there. The suffering of the man is strictly, uh, strikingly, excuse me, brutal. The description of the man also makes many allusions to the biblical Job, which gives the sense that he is specifically, he, that he specifically represents the righteous remnant who is exiled due to their membership within the covenant community of Judah. 
you have to see there is a complete shift in Western understanding. We, particularly as Americans, we are told that we are all individuals. We are the, the ones who determine our own destin destiny in life. We are, uh, we are leaders in our own rights. We depend on nobody. We're completely autonomous. That's the way we work and function. That is so countercultural to, to the Hebrew culture. The Hebrew culture saw themselves as one. As we go as a people, no matter if it's, well, I'll take a, you can see this in today's society. As we as a society spin down the cycle of the toilet with our lack of morality that we're demonstrating in the United States of America, there is a remnant, there is a people of God that experienced the, the same weight of judgment of the consequences of when you, it's a, what you sow, you will reap. This nation is sowing the seeds of incredible immorality, and we are starting to see the seams fall apart on us. This, this quote, a nation under God that doesn't want a God. We're starting to see how God is allowing that which we have sown as a nation to be experienced. We're reaping that experience as we start to see the vileness of who we are with no, with no understanding of God's law or God's way of do, living life. Well, so it is with the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 3. He's experiencing all this pain while being innocent of sin. So if you did nothing to sin, oh my goodness, it's chapter 3 eye-opening to you because you experience all the pain as a people, as a part of the membership of the community, and you sit there and you've got to go like, like Job, like Jeremiah. Why? I didn't do this. They did it. I, and Job is being falsely accused. Jeremiah is, is being brought into and, ha, and plays. He is suffering at the hands of the other people's sin. Do we not, as a people of God, suffer at the hands of other people's sins? I mean, you only need to look at your, your closest relationships, friendships, extended family, dare I say, the marriage. My wife knows my sin quite personally because she's the first recipient because I'm in a covenant relationship with her. When I sin, she feels it. Is that not an injustice? Why should she have to? She didn't sin, but that's the economy of what we live in this fallen world. So let me con continue. I want you to see how much this book aligns with Job so you can see that this is what I believe truly is Jeremiah experiencing this, a Job-like moment. Let's look at this. Both are called strong, are the strong man. We would expect Job to, when it says, um, excuse me, we expect an lamentation, and I didn't even realize this in Job. It doesn't use when he refers to himself. He doesn't say a man, Adam. That's the, the, by far the majority of the way man or mankind is referred to in the Bible. He uses the word gebir. Gebir. Well, that means strong man, but it doesn't mean strong as in lifting weights necessarily. Context determines if it means valiant, strong in, in character, that you're brave. Does it mean strong, physically strong? Or does it mean specific, or not, not just one specific attribute of your character, but rather a man of character. Job was considered a righteous man. So is Jeremiah. They are strong in character, and yet they feel the weight 
of judgment upon them. So you can see the sameness that is occurring. So they both experience crooked paths. And you can see the, the scripture references. I'm not going to go there. Refer to all the scripture references. They both experience devoured by animals. They make that reference. Targeted by God's arrows. They are mocked by the nations. Full, full of bitterness. Good to bear chastisement from God. They both admit that it's good to bear the chastisement or the, the uh, disciplining by God. Even if they're not sinned. They're still feeling the, the, they're still gaining value by understanding that. Sitting in, in silence, face in the dust. Face in the dust is a place of humiliation. What was the snake? Please don't believe that the snake had legs and he lost legs and now he's going to go slither on his belly the rest of his life. There are some that teach it. That is not the best, that is, I think that is an unbiblical view of the snake in Genesis 3. When it says on your belly you will basically slither the rest of your days, the idea of being on your face or on your belly for the snake in the dust, if you look at, through it in a, uh, a Hebrew understanding, it's the picture of humiliation. So Job and Jeremiah are feeling the humiliation that the whole nation, God intended the nation, because the nation wouldn't humble itself and worship God. You will either humble yourself or God will humiliate you if he loves you, to bring you back to a place you go, I'm, I'm done. I now feel the weight. I can see only dust. I see only the ground. I am a worm. I am nothing. I have sinned. I confess my sin. I want to be made right again. Humiliation is a grace of God. That's what God is doing in Ecclesiastes. Judgment is both righteous and it's a grace unto the people to get them to stop taking part in idolatry. So we continue on. Uh, we see they both deal with, uh, refer to healing in the future. So they have a future perspective of God. God will not pervert justice, a theme of both of them. Both good and bad come from God. He's the God who is sovereign. He, he brings good and bad into our lives. And, he, and they both feel a sense of being blocked. Their access to God is blocked. They feel like he's not hearing them in the midst of their, their difficult times. All things we can we can sense in our own lives through times of difficulties. Okay, let's switch over the page to the back side here. Lamentations 4. The city besieged. Lamentations 4 uh, shares similar characteristics with the poem in Lamentations 3 in that both graphic in that both graphically depict the physical effects of the exile upon the inhabitants of the city. The siege motif is pre prevalent uh, in this poem. And its immediate impact on the city is displayed using disturbing images. Lamentations 5. Communal, again, the communal lament, the finale. The book of Lamentations come to a somewhat abrupt end with this final communal lament. Uh, lament excuse me. The inhabitants of the city, men, women, and children, those are what we've, that this is going to cover, are mentioned as experiencing physical suffering from their enemies. They are all discouraged and ill. They're in a state of distress. Yet the poem ends with a glimmer of hope as it appeals to Yahweh. Notice it uses the word Yahweh because they stop using the, the, the different wording of Lord, L-O-R-D, small L-O-R-D, meaning he's there simply there. I don't want to say simply. He's, it has the picture of master. But now he's not just master. He's my covenanted master. My hands are in his hands. 
I like to call him now. I'm not going to call him just this sovereign guy out there, this master of doing everything he wants. He is my covenanted God. That's why the change of the, the, the use of the word and the focus on Yahweh from the people themselves. As their king to remember and restore them. And that's in uh, Lamentations 5, 19 to 22. Let me do this. I'm going to go ahead and get all the way through this. And I'm going to try and come back and pick up some of these verses. Uh, Wayne, if you can just hang on. Because I want to get through this. Because if, I, if we just read Lamentations 3, you, are, you can get that at home. I want to make sure you get the rest of this. And I, I'm, I'm pointing it out first. Life applications. The study of Lamentations is to remind us of that which we fight to avoid. The harsh reality, however, is that many in the church suffer a life ravaged and decimated by transgressions, all of which produces only agony and pain. So, church, we are a people that are God's set-apart set people. That thus, we are holy. We are set apart. We are his people that know his covenant of grace. And yet, when we sin, we still feel the weight of our transgressions. Sometimes we don't feel the weight because it's a light weight and we all do multiple transgressions. But there are times in our lives, each of us, as, as we get, particularly as we get older and we can look back, we can see that our lives were at the minimum dry in areas because of what we were doing. And at other times they were downright chaotic because of our sin. Some were just dry, meaning it felt like God's presence wasn't there. He was far off. And others, we can feel the weight of him by way of, man, we got, I just got chaos in my life. And anyway, let's continue on. Now he's, he's going to talk about, uh, the author here is going to talk about some of these, these groups. Some are unwilling to acknowledge these distresses, but they can surface psychosomatically. I am not one that likes those big words. I don't like to over-psychologize, but I will tell you psychosomatic is a good word. What I mean by good word is it gives a good understanding. I don't like when psychology steps in the realm of theology and tries to tell us why it happens. When psychology observes life and says, wow, this is all that happens when you do that. Hey, psychology is great. Thank you, psychology. Bring on the study of the soul. But let my theology tell me the why. Because psychology never goes to God. So that's why you'll hear me caution. Psychology is good informing. It's not good giving reasons. So we want to make sure of that. But psycho, uh, psychosomatic means that we are physical creatures and we are spiritual creatures. When we sin against God, our sin can get us to a point where that chaos actually reveals itself in our body. David experienced that. Somebody read, and, um, Wayne, give somebody the, the uh, Mike, for Psalm 32, 1 through 4. Anybody who wants to read Psalm 32, 1 through 4, this is dealing with David experienced this body, his body telling him, oh, brother, you are out of sorts with God. You are in disobedience to God. Go ahead. Psalm 32, 1 through 4. You're good. You're fine. Don't feel rushed. Mm-hmm. It's in the Old Testament. <laughs> Just playing with you. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I want you to hear this. This is both judgment and God's grace against the covenanted people of God. When he kept silent, that means he didn't confess. He was keeping his, his sin hidden, his sin against Bathsheba and then her husband. Here the king says, engage with me in this relationship, and she does. He's the king, for goodness sakes. And then we have the killing of the husband to hide the, the, the sin. He, he hides that, and he, it's his body that tells him, you can't hide this anymore because of the weight he is feeling of God's hand upon him. His bones are aching. So you see, we are both spiritual and physical creatures. Sometimes it's the spiritual that drives our physical. Sometimes it's the physical that tells us, eh, we're out of line with God. Don't hear that if you're getting aged and you wake up and things are cricking and all that other stuff. Now that means, oh, I'm out of line with God. But I'm, we need to ask those questions sometimes. Okay, now let's look at the other thing. Now this is another group. This is the group that's unwilling to acknowledge. And that's definitely what the city of Jerusalem was. They were in absolute idolatry. They were unwilling to acknowledge until they feel the weight of God's judgment upon them. B, still others are not able to acknowledge them. These are the individuals represented in Lamentations. Extreme misery has a profound and powerful effect upon the frail human psyche. Uh, psychology, psyche. Psyche is Greek for soul. So we're not afraid of that word. Um, the sheer excruciating intensity of pain is often so overwhelming that it, leaves us, that it leaves us for an extended time in a state of emotional and spiritual deafness and numbness. Interesting, when we went through the study with, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it, basically getting in, crawling into the casket, do you remember that he said that there is a slowing process, there's a shock God gives us when we're overwhelmed with a situation. Everything slows down. That's what happens in shock. I have been on the scene of a man with a gun, and I was the first to see him jump over. I'm in the back. I didn't even realize at first. I'm in the backyard with the guy with the gun, and he's going over to the next one. And all of a sudden, it was like I went into one of those, those uh, movies where everything slows down. Audible went away. I had no, no hearing. I felt like I was moving slowly, and I was watching him go over the wall. I was trying to process I'm about to engage a man in a gun battle. And that's all I could process at the, at the moment. And everything slowed down. This is what happens. There's a spiritual deafness a, and, a, and dumbness. We start to, to our, our ability to process slows down. So let's continue on. We want to share our pain. We need to share our pain. We are communal creatures. God made us that way. But we are unable to speak of our pain. It hurts that badly. That's why Job's friends did such a wonderful job by sitting with him and shutting their mouths. Job had to process the pain he was going through. He had no words. It was overwhelming him. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. He's standing in shock, and everything has slowed down for him. He can't process. See, we are encouraged to pray to the Lord in such times of trouble, but our senses are immobilized during these agonizing times. Those who have experienced the loss of a loved ones 
or the severing of, of sincere and meaningful relationships. As this list goes on, you can't almost, there's almost no one in this, this, this congregation right now that can't relate to one aspect of this. Those who have endured a losing battle against physical illness and ailments. Those who have attempted to live in godly obedience only to face rejection and scorn. That would be unjust, an injustice against you. You're trying to live this godly life and you're mocked by the society. In short, anyone who lives on planet Earth knows of what I speak, a pain so painful that it cannot be expressed in human words. Point number two here. We cannot, cannot expect those in pain to immediately begin meditating on Lamentations and find spiritual healing within it. If I were to take the book of Lamentations as a pastor and say, look, I know you're going through this suffering, just read Lamentations and you'll be fine. It doesn't work like that. They can't process words. You, I'll say it this way. You can't process words. You're struggling to figure things out. All the big questions. Why? How could I have prevented this? Is there something I could have done different? All of that's going through your mind. To process sometimes is too difficult. You just need to sit in the midst of your God and beg him to remind you of his presence. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, we, uh, so, interesting. The reason this starts with point number two is it's going to tell us that Lamentations is written in a way that it pulls this sufferer who is struggling to process to cognitively start to work through, think through, and then the cognition hits the emotions to emote through and to start to work through the theology. Things start working. The train starts moving forward. That's why Lamentations is written in the manner it's written. It's a book that helps you process the pain. Praise be to God. It's a slow process. So let's read this. The poet author knows this and gradually brings the reader into the morning experience of the, of the book with care and sensitivity. Ultimately, the reader is united with the personified mourners to, a form, to form a new stricken and grieving community. Church, when somebody is hurting, they need a community that empathizes or at least sympathizes with their hurting. That you don't have to have answers. You just have to love them, be patient with them, and be with them. Don't avoid them. Avoiding isn't good. They want the, They may not realize it, but we are communal creatures. We do want people around. We just don't want all the heavy questions because they don't have the answers. And that drives them nuts that they don't have the answers. So don't push the answers. But you can still engage them. Let's continue on. In So under some point one, under A, in Lamentations 1 and 2, the reader witnesses the pain and destruction as a third-party observer. That's you and me, the reader. That's, how we're, that's what, the way Lamentations is, is written. It's safe to view it as a third person. In Lamentations 3, the sufferer takes on an individual perso- person. It should be persona. I lost the A there, I can tell. As a man who has experienced affliction. The pronouns change in verses 40 to 47 to we. We. Did you know in criminal uh, analysis, criminal statement analysis, that a suspect will always use first person? They, they, they will use, excuse me, present tense 
when they're actually part of the, the situation. They will default. If, if I ask you to, to watch something, and I, actually, I say, give me a statement of what you just watched, you will not realize it, but you'll start to slip into first person. You're reliving it. That's one way we know when suspects give statements. When they say they weren't there, they'll start to slip into first person, and, and we don't tell it to the suspect. But you're like, ah, this person, there's something. He is, he is engaged in this as someone who was a part of this, even though his words aren't saying that. His tense, his verb tense is saying that. Well, the same as what's going on here. The author has now transitioned and he's using we, and you probably never have caught. I didn't. When I was researching this week, this week I'm like, oh my goodness, look what he does. In Lamentations 3 and 4, he's now pulling the reader out of the third person and carrying them along, allowing them to feel as though, hey, we're both experiencing this. We are the communal grieving community together. The author is bringing the reader into the grieving community. What a beautiful, loving, tender, sensitive way God has written this, this book. We continue on. Uh, notice there, it says, pronouns change in verses 40 to 47 to we. So the reader is now part of the suffering community and realizes the book is not only for him. I want you to hear this. The book is not only for him. The book is about him. You start to feel like this is my book. This is what I feel. The, the people suffering, those are my community. And then number, uh, bullet point number three there. That communal suffering continues in Lamentations 4, and we becomes the dominant voice in Lamentations 5. And then finally, by the end of Lamentations, no longer is the pain depicted as that of others. This is the reader's pain. This is my pain. We are no longer alone, and there is comfort within, our, within a community, even one that shares similar struggles. Together, they desperately appeal to their Lord as a source of, of their comfort. And I'm glad that I chose not to go. I'm sorry I couldn't get to the, all of the verses. I would love to have read um, Lamentations 3, but I had a feeling that we were going to run out of time. We only have two minutes left. I, if you could read this thing again, and I want you to hear this. Some of you were, were looking over there when, when, uh, just a minute ago, and this is so critical. I'm going to read, say this one more time. The reader is now part of the suffering community and realizes the book is not only for him, but about him. If you'll read this book this sometime this week or in the near future, if you'll just keep this page and read this book as from chapter 1 to chapter 5, I believe, armed with this information, you'll see things you'll, you've never seen before. You'll realize that your heart is being pulled into it like you've never. You may have read it as history before, that you were distanced from it. My hope and prayer is that you read it now as one that is part of the grieving community. Anybody have any questions before we close our time? Okay. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. What an amazing book this, this Lamentations turns out to be. What an amazing insight into the suffering process. Father, I pray that you will use it to comfort our hearts, to draw us nearer unto you, that we could see the same hopes that the, that the author, Jeremiah, and ultimately you gave Jeremiah. It is an inspired reading that this hope is something that 
we are reminded of in the midst of our suffering. We thank you for your tender care. We thank you that you are the God who loves, the God who covenants with, the God who is steadfast and always faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.